Lord, we come before you and we just thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've done for us. We ask you to bless and anoint this time as we look at your word. Guide us and lead us as we study. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right. Hebrews chapter 6. Paul in the previous verse had been telling them that they should be teachers by this and they were still needing to be taught the, the first principles, uh, kind of chastising them like get, get on the stick. <laughs> uh, so in verse uh, chapter 6 of Hebrews. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrines of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms, of the laying on of hands, and of the resurrection of the dead, and of eternal life. And this we will do if God permits. All right, we're going to just stop there because this is Paul talking about what he considers to be the primary doctrines of Christianity. And I think we all know these ones, but we're going to just take a moment and, and kind of talk a little bit about what he's calling the um, principles of the doctrines. The very, then, then principles means the first things. So he comes in and says, therefore, leaving, all right, he wants to leave and get past the, the beginning parts of this. And this, the rest of this book is pretty heavily intensive doctrines as he's bringing out. He says, these are the beginnings. You should know these. And he's not really going to talk about them. He's just going to say, here they are, and he's moving on. And so the first one he says, uh, and then he says, let us go into perfection. And this word for protection means, uh, let's see what, I lost it. Um, the state of more knowledge, all right? So he's going to say, I want to take us beyond the, ba the beginnings. We want to go beyond the basics. And it says, not laying again the foundation foundation of repentance from dead works. So the first thing about salvation is that we're to repent. And what are we repenting of? Dead works or sins. The wages of sin is death. So he says repentance. Repentance from what we have done is the first, first thing he lists of these, of these basic doctrines for Christianity. Now, repentance is one that's kind of fallen a, a, away a little bit in the churches. A lot of churches don't talk about repentance. But God says that we're to confess our sins. We're to repent. We're to turn away from our sin toward God. And this is what Paul is saying is the first of those doctrines. He didn't, well, the, it's the first one he lists. So probably the first one that popped into his mind was repentance. And this is true. You know, we realize that we're a sinner and we repent of our sins and turn away from our sins and turn toward God. And the second one that he names is an of faith toward God. We have to have faith that is looking to God. One of the things that we learn is everybody has a measure of faith that they live by. Everybody. The atheist has faith in his atheism that there is no God. You know, and I've talked about this, you know, we, we exercise faith every day in our life in everything that we do. We all came in, we sat down in these folding chairs, and we didn't think twice about sitting down in these folding chairs. We had faith that they were going to support us. They always have in the past. They still look sturdy. Nobody bent the legs. Nobody, nobody twisted them up, you know, and we go, that chair will hold me. And we have faith. And I have shared, you know, you know those little white uh, stick things that they that they use for uh, uh, rentals for big events. You know, the the chair, the the, the folding chairs that have, have no stability to them. I have no faith to sit in those because I used to be even bigger than I am now, and I've had many of them collapse under me. So I look at those and say, there needs to be a better chair around here, or I am not sitting. <laughs> okay. Uh, so those catering chairs, that's the right term I'm looking for, the catering chairs. They are like matchbooks to me, you know, I sit down in them and they collapse. So I do not trust them. I have no faith in them. I will not sit one, even though I've lost 80 pounds, I will not sit in one of those because I just don't trust them. They haven't held me up for many years. And no, you know, so we look at things and our faith often goes by experience. You know, and those chairs, I'm sure, are fairly, fairly good chairs overall, but too many of them have collapsed under me, so I won't, don't have faith. But Paul is saying our faith needs to be toward God. 
know, and this is interesting because how many times are we as Christians, you know, made fun of because we have an invisible God that we can't see? You know, and I've had that, you know, how, especially at the college level, how can you believe in something that you can't see? You know, and that's an easy answer. Well, you believe in gravity, don't you? You believe in weather, don't you? You know, it's pretty easy to be able to explain to them, you know, we believe in all kinds of things that we can't see. You believe in electricity. We still don't know how electricity really truly works and how and, and all of that. We just know how it works, but we don't we don't see it. There's nothing there. We know that they kill people if they are grounded and it's sufficiently strong enough. Uh, we know that the effects of it will turn on, you know, will excite certain gases and make light. Uh, but we don't see it. We can't touch it safely. <laughs> uh, you know, we can't taste it. But yet we believe it. You know, and if you try to tell me you don't believe in gravity, I'm going to tell you you're a liar because you've fallen down several times in your lifetime, no matter who you are. You know, so our faith has to be toward God and his work of salvation for us. So those are the first two he gives us. And then he says the doctrine of baptisms, plural. Now, we know of the one baptism is the water baptism which is the outward sign of what God has done inside me. He's changed me and, and, and washed me. It's my agreement that I am going to be dead toward my old way of thinking and living toward my new way of thinking. That is the one baptism. That is the water baptism. Then we have the spiritual baptism where when we are first saved, the Holy Spirit indwells us and empowers us with the power of the Holy Spirit and means everything that we have. I mean, when we read about the gifts of the Holy Spirit and all of that, the Holy Spirit lives in us, and if we just let him, he will empower us to fulfill all those gifts. Now, not on demand. You know, I, am, I, I have prayed for people through the Holy Spirit and had them be healed. Do I think I'm a healer? Nope. <laughs> Number one, God's the healer, and he just does it when he wants to. You know, praying, praying in tongues, speaking, teaching, all the, gifts, all the gifts that are out there are all part of that spiritual baptism. And all of them are very important to be able to understand. And Paul is listing this as a primary doctrine. Water baptism and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And, you know, there is the baptism of the Holy Spirit where we're filled at salvation and there's the infillings over and over again where we get to experience his power, you know, through asking of those powers and seeking, the, seeking those powers and, and using them. Then he says, and of laying on of hands. Now, this is the more interesting one. The laying on of the hands was, what was done when somebody was appointed into a position of authority. They would lay their hands on them and pray over them. It was basically a symbol of the anointing of the spirit on them for that job, all right? Uh, Paul and Barnabas, the, the church commissioned them. They, they laid their hands on them. They commissioned them to be missionaries. Over and over, we see the laying on of hands. In the Old Testament, we, it was called the anointing. They would literally pour a bottle of oil or you know, lots of oil. You know, we, we think of them as just putting a few drops of oil, but usually they would talk about putting a gallon of olive oil over these poor people. You know, uh, and that was the anointing. <laughs> uh, it wasn't just a few drops <laughs> uh, like we do in today's world. You know, churches will anoint, you know, they'll put an oil on their finger and just put it on your forehead or something, and you know, that's your anointing. <laughs> uh, not quite what they did in the Old Testament. Uh, they would cover because you, we read in Psalms where it talks about the oil flowing down over Aaron as he was anointed high priest and coming down his beard and coming down to his feet. You know, that wasn't done by just a couple drops. That was, that was done by literally pouring a bunch of oil. And it was to, and it's mostly to represent the Holy Spirit coming over somebody and empowering them and authorizing them to do a particular job. And the church is the one that recognizes this. Uh, it's mostly the sign to people. It's a sign of what has already happened to you. And the, the basic sign, the real sign is that you've letting go of your old way of thinking and saying, I'm going to follow yes. Jesus. 
because water baptism was not new to most religions, period, and to the Jews, and it has always been dying to something and, and living to something else. Uh, the Jews used it primarily for proselytes, uh, people who became Jews. They became Jews, they would die to their old, old religion and be raised up into their new religion. They also did it, though, if they switched rabbis. This is why John the Baptist, you know, all through the New Testament, they go, whose baptism were you baptized into? You know, I was baptized into the baptism of John. John's message was repentance. That was what he taught. So they're dying to the works of the law and, the, and everything and, and living to repentance. And so this has always been the picture of baptism uh, all through the Bible was that you died to your old way of thinking and living to a new way of thinking. So for us as Christians, we're dying to the world, we're dying to whatever religion we followed, and we're living into the teachings of Christ. And, you know, it's been unfortunate that that has been lost in the church over the years. Uh, the Baptists like to say it's an outward sign of an inward conversion. And I agree with it that it is, but it's so much more than what they say. Because it really is, I'm dying to my old way of thinking and I'm coming back, I'm being resurrected into a new way of thinking, a new doctrine. And this is what Paul, you know, the people Paul's talking to understood that, so he doesn't even talk about it. He's talking to Hebrews. They've been using this for a long time. But there are many religions that use a water baptism when people convert to their, to their religious activity. And they go, okay, you're dying to your, to your old way and you're coming into a new way of, new way of thinking. So that's baptism. Um, and of the resurrection of the dead. This is one of the greatest things about Christianity is that we have the claim that you will live for eternity and your body will be raised as well. Now, many religions say you're going to live for it forever, but you don't talk about your body being restored. You just get to be spirit. You know, if you're in a Buddhist or, or the Zen mentality, you, be, you enter into nirvana, which is not a real place. It's a spiritual place, and your spirit goes into the nirvana if you've lived a good enough life after 5,688 times. <laughs> Keep repeating and repeating until you live the life that gets you into nirvana. You know, but that's not a real place in their teaching. Uh, and that number is only a made-up number as I was giving it up, because who knows how long it might take you into their principles. Uh, you know, and most of them don't have you going into a real place that requires a body at some point. And this is what is so different about Christianity. Christianity says you are going to be resurrected and you are going to enter into a real kingdom that has real activities going on in it and have eternal life. And that is what Paul is saying here. You know, we have a resurrection. And he could have been going in just as Jesus, he said it in some of his epistles, just as Jesus was the first fruit of the resurrection, he was the first of the, those to rise again, we will be like him. And what kind of body he had, we don't know. We do know that he showed up in the room. He told Thomas, go ahead and touch me. You can touch me. I'm not a ghost. You can come and put your finger in my hand. You can put your, your fist in my side. There's nothing that said that Thomas did it. But he said, if that's what you need to believe, here I am, do it. He met them on the this shoreline in Galilee, and he made breakfast for them and ate fish. So he's capable of eating in his, in his new body. He's able to be touched in his new body. He's able to walk through walls in his new body, which is very different from our bodies. But he was able to just show up in the wall. He was able to just leave. So we don't know fully what these new bodies are going to be like, but he is the first fruit. So we can eat. We know that we're going to, in, in heaven, when we get, go to the rapture, we're going to have the marriage supper of the Lamb going on, which means we're going to have a great big feast. And it's just a short, a short feast. It's only going to last seven years. You know, that's quite a feast. <laughs> uh, but it's going to be a celebration. I don't think we're going to be sitting in the banqueting hall for seven years, but you know, in and out and just enjoying seven years, a seven-year party. Uh, pretty good party. <laughs> but 
all of these going on, he says, and the resurrection of the dead. And then the final thing he said, and of eternal judgment. So he makes six points that he says, these are the basics of Christianity. And eternal judgment is the one that most religions do not like. Most of the cults do not like this. They will talk about annihilation. They will say that when you die, if you don't, spend, if you don't go to heaven, you'll just be annihilated. You won't, you won't exist after that. And their, their logic is that God is a God of love. He could, he could never punish somebody for eternity. But God made us to be eternal beings, eternal forward. Uh, so when we're born, we're going to live forever somewhere either in eternal life and joy and peace with God or eternal death and discomfort outside of God, all by our choice while we're on this earth. And this is going to be the thing, and this is what Paul says, eternal judgment. This isn't the only verse that talks about eternal judgment. All right? it's, it's known all through the scriptures, and it's just presumed. There's no real long teaching on it. It's just they'll mention it. You know, in one or two verses in, in, each, in several of the epistles, it's just that you'll be judged for eternity. And it's just assumed. These were Hebrew writers. Remember that the, the disciples were Hebrews. Every one of them were Jewish believers, except for possibly Luke. Um, they were all Jews. So when they speak, they're all coming from a Jewish perspective and they don't always explain what they're talking about because they're going, I'm a Jew writing to, to Jews or people who are going to learn like Jews so we don't have to explain these things. And in this book, he knows he's speaking to Jews, so he doesn't explain a whole lot of things. He says, these are just the beginning. Yeah. And these are pretty much known to the Jewish people as fact. Now, not all of them believed every one of these points. You had the Sadducees who didn't believe in, in heaven and hell. They didn't believe anything. They, they were spiritual. They were, this life is the only life there is to live. They were like many of our people today. The Pharisees understood all of these things, and Paul wasn't a Pharisee. So he's going, these are just basic things. Let's, let's, let's move on. You know, and this is kind of a dangerous place to be when you're talking to somebody, assuming that they know the basics. Uh, he's writing this letter, so maybe he's hoping that somebody out there will be able to explain. If they don't know the basics, somebody there will be the teacher that can explain the basics to them. And this is what happens in our churches. We need people to be able to explain the basics so we can move on to, to deeper things. And in our church, I think we're doing good. We, I think most of us understand the basics, and we're ready to move to deeper, deeper things. Um, not all churches are there. There are some churches that are very basic. And usually those churches bring in a lot of new believers and entertain a lot of new believers, put them on the path, and then those people leave those churches and go get fed somewhere else. Uh, it happens a lot. There's lots of them out there, and I'm not going to name them, but you know, there's several big, big ones that are starter churches. You know, they get lots of people saved, you know, lots of people energized, and then they need to go someplace else to really get the knowledge that, of the deeper stuff. And I'm not saying those are bad churches. We need those. You know, and the churches that are teaching deep have to also be able to teach at a lower level to get people excited. Otherwise, you just lose them. They're going, oh, this is just too much for me. I don't know about this. And this is the importance of doctrine. And I keep saying this over and over. Doctrine is not a scary word. It's just a way of thinking. Most Christians hear the word doctrine and they are paranoid, you know, because they, they go to the pastor's office and he's got doctrine books all over his shelves, you know, all about the doctrines. And I've shared this, you know, I, I don't remember where, where I saw it, but there, were, there was on the doctrine of salvation, very simple doctrine. We're, we're sinners, we deserve hell, Jesus died for our sins, we need to accept him. Very simple. Any child can understand it, any child can do it. The, the set of doctrine books that this pastor had was a seven-book series, all with like a 1,000 pages in them. They were not skinny books. They were thick books, you know, six, 700, 800 pages per book because that's how complicated salvation is. Even though it's a simple, easy doctrine to understand, it is very deep. 
And we can take this with any of these doctrines that Paul has thrown out here. They're very basic and simple doctrines, but they're also very deep. You know, if you want to study it, you can take any one of these doctrines and spend your entire life studying it and still not know everything there is to know about it. That's how God is, how infinite God is with his knowledge. He says, oh, you want to know about this one? Let me give you a little deeper. Well, you want to know a little more? Here's a little more. And I've said this, you know, I've said this several times. What do we know about grace? You know, we think we know a lot about grace and we don't even begin to touch what grace is. What do we think about God's love? If we just fully understood God's love, which we can't, what about sovereignty? God is sovereign. What does that mean? How, how deep can we go on that? What does God control? Everything? What is everything? A lot more than we think of. You know, and I've said this, you know, God is omnipresent. You know, my, my thought process used to be when I first heard that word is, okay, God's everywhere. That's wonderful. I now understand that God is every time as well. And now, because I'm learning a little bit more about physics over the years, he's every dimension. If there's multiple universes, he's the God of every one of those universes. How big can God be? I don't know. I don't know. How big, how big is there? What, what is there we don't even know about yet? And now we're starting to talk about quarks and all these other things that are below the sub, in the subatomic level. He's there too as God. You know, we don't fully understand anything about God and yet we think we do. Yeah. So we have these beginning principles and then he says in verse 3, and we will do this if God permits. <laughs> we're going to leave the basic principles. And so now we start with this uh, very interesting section in, in verse 4. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away and renew them again, to renew them again unto repentance, seeing that they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to open shame. For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes oft upon it and brings forth herbs met for them to whom it is dressed receives blessing from God. But that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. We're going to stop with that but. <laughs> this scripture is used by people who say you can lose your salvation because of what it says in English. It doesn't say any such thing in, in, the, in the Greek, but they use it on here. And what's worse is they say that if you lose your salvation, you cannot be resaved. Which is terrible, but that is, if you're going to say that you can lose your salvation based on this verse, you have no hope of ever being saved again by the, according to this verse. So let's look at what Paul is actually saying in this. He says, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted the heavenly gift and who were made partakers of the Holy Spirit. So what is he saying? For those who are truly saved. You have actually tasted the word of God. You have actually tasted of the presence of God and all of these things, the heavenly gift, and you are made partakers of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has actually come into you. All right? So he says, for, it is impossible for those type of people. All right? And have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come. So he is making a point that these people are truly saved. They're not people that Jesus said, you know, there will be many in that day that said, Lord, Lord, didn't die. All right? They didn't taste, didn't, didn't have the power. Because Jesus said, there are many in that day that I will say, depart from me. I never knew you. All right? So they're not of this group of people that he's talking about. These are people that have actually known God. And then in English, it has the word in verse 6, if. That word if is not in the Greek. The word in Greek is and. It continues the list of things that they do. And if they shall fall away, and the Greek indicates that they cannot. So it is a sentence that says, 
if they were to fall away and they cannot fall away, Paul does this a lot. He throws out an argument and says, if this were to happen, but it cannot, and the Greek indicates that it cannot, because Greek has a multiple if-then-else structure, if and it can happen, if and it cannot happen, if and it may or may not happen. In English, we just have the if and it may or may not happen. All right? we, when we use if-then, it's always if this is true, then this will happen. And that's not the way Greek is. Greek has three different ways to be able to say that. And this one doesn't even have an if, but the, the function of it in Greek is, you know, let's leave if there. If and it cannot happen is what he's saying. If they shall fall away, all right, is what he's saying. If this person with eternal life would totally fall away and reject God altogether, he says, um, to renew them again unto repentance and seeing that they crucify themselves to the Son of God afresh and put him into open shame. So he's saying it is impossible for those true believers, if they were to, if and they can't do it, fall away, to be renewed. All right? If you have eternal life and somehow you fell out of eternal life, which is impossible because you have eternal life and God doesn't lie, you know, to, to get back because you'd have to crucify Christ all over again. And that's what Paul is saying. It's an impossibility. You have eternal life. And this is the biggest thing that I, that I tell people that want to believe that you can lose your salvation. I'll go, can God lie? And they'll go, no, God cannot lie. Are you sure that God cannot lie? Yep, God cannot lie. And I'll quote John 3.6 to them, or 3.16 to them. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And the verse does not say everlasting life as long as they obey or everlasting life as long as God doesn't reject them. It's a promise that we have everlasting life. All we have to do is believe. Very simple. Now, there are those that don't fit into this category. All right? uh, that aren't, haven't tasted, haven't believed, haven't followed God, and they're not saved. Can they lose their salvation? Well, they never had it in the first place, so they can't lose it. If they didn't have it. But they might think that they had it, and they never had it, and lose what they thought they had. All right? And we see plenty of people like this that have rejected. And the problem that we really have is there are people that don't finish well with God, and they fall away. Solomon was one of those. If you had looked at Solomon, you know, he started out well with God saying, hey, I just want wisdom, and he built the temple, and he, and he got the people doing what he wanted, and then he married too many women and got pulled aside into uh, pulling away from God, and it wasn't until his old age that he finally repented and at least had the right ending. Paul says, I've run a good race. I finished the fight. I am ready to go home. I have met many people that they, they go along and, and they're going well with God and then all of a sudden fall, fall away from him for whatever reason. You know, and I can't be their judge. I don't know if they're in this group where they really knew God and they're just struggling on their end days or did they never know God and they were working in their own strength. And we don't know and we can't judge them. That is for God to decide. You know, our job is to, you fell away, you know, repent, come back to God. He still wants you because again, it's all by grace that we're saved. And if you think you can lose your salvation, you don't understand how you got saved in the first place. For by grace are you saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. If I did not get and earn my salvation by my works and it's a gift of God, how can I lose it by doing the wrong things? Because God does not change. If he's given me eternal life, he's not going to take it back. And this is what Paul is saying here. He goes, if these type of people fell away, and the indication in Greek is, and they, and they can't, then there would be no hope for them. God's grace would be, okay, you fell away, there's no, no, no more grace for you. And I know that there are people that believe this verse. I've met them in Christian circles who are totally despondent because they feel they've lost their salvation 
and they realize that this verse says that if you've lost your salvation, there's no hope for you. And they basically will just go into sin, you know, get as much fun out of this life as they can possibly get, even though they know sin's not going to be fun, because they're so sure that they're going to go to hell because this verse says that you lost your salvation. And that is sad. It is sad that they don't understand it because of an English translation that says if. And this word is and. So he's just putting one more thing. You know, if you've, not, if you've really met Jesus and this and this and this and you were to fall away, and which the last part, that last and is one that cannot happen, he goes, then you would have no hope. You'd be eternally damned. <laughs> now, he sandwiches this again with this whole thing. For the earth which drinks in the rain that comes upon it and produces herbs met for them that for whom it is dressed receives blessing from God. So he's saying, those that produce good things on the earth, it's a blessing of God, and it's a sandwich between the two because who provided the rain is God, and then God produces the, 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 product, uh, the, the produce. So all those good things were done by God. And then he says, but that which bears thorns and briars is rejected and, and is nigh unto cursing, whose end is to be burned. So those that are not the right uh, plant are rejected. If you are his child, you are now engrafted into the vine, which is Jesus, and you will produce fruit of God's, God's making. You're not a bramble. You're not a thorn. If you are his child, you are put into Jesus Christ, he is the vine, we are the branches. And now we will be pruned, all the dead leaves will be removed, all the dead uh, branches will be moved so that we produce fruit even better. And it hurts to have all those branches and leaves you know, cut off and, and, and pruned. But he says, I'm gonna make you produce fruit. And it is by my grace, my blessings, that you get to be the, the pro, uh, productive. He goes, otherwise, you're a thorn. You're a bramble. And if you are in Christ, you are not a thorn or bramble. He does not put thorns and brambles into him. He says, we're part of the vine, uh, the branches of the vine. And again, all of this breaks down to the actual argument here is that you cannot lose your salvation. It's all a gift of God. All right? And so the most important thing you're going to have to remember, if somebody throws this, Verse 6 at you, if, yeah, it's if and you cannot, and it cannot happen in, in, its, in its mindset. So don't, don't fall for this being the you can lose your salvation verse, because it's not. Any questions? Very strong, very strong, and you'll meet people who believe this. If they believe they can lose their salvation, this is one of their strongest verses that they will use that you can lose your salvation. And it's all because it translates poorly in, into English. And again, it's just one of those things. Greek is a very accurate language, and it has lots of places where it does not translate well into English without lots of words. And I think they should have put, and and it cannot happen. Yeah. <laughs> you, you lost. But they were trying not to be verbose. <laughs> and what does yours say? Oh, mine says if. Mine says if. My, I got a King James Bible. Uh, most of them say if. I've, even most of the new translations say if for some strange reason. And if is not even the word. It's and. Yeah. If, if yeah. Fall away. I think the NIV even said if. Yeah. yeah. But it's not, the, it's not, I, it's not I-E in Greek uh, or iota, uh, epsilon. It's, it's a totally different word, which I didn't write down. <laughs> Does yours say if? Yeah, they're, they're all going to say if. Uh, but it's it's all because this is God. And if anything believes that you can lose your salvation, you truly don't understand how you got saved in the first place. You know, that it's by grace. And if it's all by grace, then I don't have to do anything to keep it. Now, if I, and I've said this, you know, if you can sin without any conviction in your life, then you have to be able to sit back and say, am I really saved? Is the Holy Spirit living in me that gives me conviction that what I'm doing is wrong? Because once you're saved, you start, you start understanding that you're doing wrong things. You don't even have to be taught. 
I've heard more than one testimony where somebody got saved and they immediately stopped, stopped their drinking and their, and their drugs and you know, sleeping around or, or felt bad about doing it, one or the other, because the Holy Spirit was in them and convicting them. Then they would learn what God said about these things and, and be able to change. But if you can sin without conviction, then you need to be able to say, uh, do I really know God? Am I really his child? Is he really living in me? And that is important. Because if, if he's not living in you, then you're not saved. If he's living in you, then you can't lose what he gave you. Because it was a gift of grace in the first place. And if, if I was to lose my gift of grace that God gave me, that meant that God changed his mind about my gift and took it away from me, and God does not change. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. So when he gives me a gift of grace, he's not going to go, well, you don't deserve it. I didn't deserve it in the first place. <laughs> All right? And this is where we have to really get to understand grace. Because I didn't deserve the salvation he gave me. No matter how good you might think you are or how bad you think you are, you don't deserve the gift of grace he gives us of salvation. So what can you do to not deserve the gift you didn't deserve in the first place? Uh, and this is something that's very important for us to understand. And the people who think they can lose their salvation have an overblown image of who they are. You know, that somehow they think they're perfect and can earn, earn something that they don't, didn't deserve. They don't understand God's grace. And as Paul said, grace is not a license to sin. You know, he said, you know, shall I sin that grace will abound? And he goes, God forbid. You know, uh, you know, grace is not saying, okay, I can go do what I want now. I can go out and sin as much as I want because God's grace is on me. If you had that attitude and you're not under conviction, you never got saved in the first place. And I think there's many people that never got saved. You know, that never got saved, never have God come, having God's presence in them. And they're the ones that scare me. They'll tell you they're saved. You know, they might even act like they're saved in more, more ways than not. Sometimes they're so righteous you wouldn't even know, you know, you know and, and self-righteous that you would think that they were saved because they're living a good life that's well-disciplined. But they're not, they've never understood the grace of God and how much he loves them and that everything they have is a gift. I was, we were interviewing a deacon one time and, and his wife because we want to make sure that the wives were... And, the, and we asked her to tell us about when she got saved, and her answer was, I've always been better than everybody that I know. And we're going, well, when did you recognize that you were a sinner and needed, needed Jesus as your Savior? I've always been better than everybody that I know was her answer. You know, she wasn't saved. She was in church all of her life. You know, from the cradle to the day she died, she'd been in church. She came in Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday nights. But her answer was that she never recognized that she was a sinner. Never realized that it was by grace that she was saved. Now, I'm not going to say that she wasn't. There may have been a time, but she never understood what it was. And her answer indicated that she wasn't saved. You know, and you know, we asked her like two or three times, you know, when did you, you know, do you realize that you are a sinner? Well, I've always been better than everybody that I know. You know. And it's a scary thought. People can go to church their entire life and not be saved. And they might even look good. They don't use God's name in vain. They, they haven't been sleeping around. They've never used drugs. They've never used alcohol. But they have raised their righteousness above God and made an idol of their righteousness and their goodness. And another thing, too, is a lot of times people, they say they believe in God, And they may or may not be saved, probably yeah. not, but they may or may not, depending on whether they recognize says, that they I were a sinner. Well, that's a scary place. But that means they need to be taught. Yeah. Because there's lots of people when they first get saved that they don't believe the Bible yet. Number one, they don't know it. Uh, so they need to become they need to get to where they know it. And this is this is very important because you know, there is a statement of lordship theology that says if he's not Lord, you're not saved. 
not quite ready to go that far, but I really do believe that if he's in you, he's going to be Lord. And so I'm real close to it, but I'm not, I'm not really ready to say that because that's a work. All right? Uh, and, you know, so I'm real, I understand, though, if he's not Lord of your life, are you truly saved? And I, I'm on the edge of it. I'm on the edge of it, but I'm not sure I fully believe that that is how you get saved. The thing we want to make sure that we don't sit there and argue with people about what they believe because the most important thing is, are they saved? Yeah. Have you recognized that you're a sinner and that Jesus is the only way to heaven? And then, once the Holy Spirit is in them, then they can learn the things they need to learn. But my goal when I'm sharing with people is just that. Are you truly saved? Now, I don't care what religion they are. I don't care what their sins are. I want to know, do you know Jesus? If they know Jesus, then the Holy Spirit is going to work with them to correct their sinful activities and get them into the right mindset as he trains them from the inside out and they start reading their Bible and they start going to church. You know, and one of the problems that I'm seeing in today's world with COVID and everything, the church is having a struggle because people are going, well, I'm, I'm worshiping. I, I worship in, at home on online. You know what? My Bible in Hebrews tells me to forsake not the assembling of ourselves together and so much more as we see the day approaching. God wants us to meet so that we can see each other face to face. We can get, we're held accountable to other people. This whole online, online worship is something that is good because we couldn't do it for, you know, some places couldn't do it for a while and it was better than nothing. But it is not a replacement for actually meeting together and having people hold you accountable and, and being able to share with you and being able to answer questions. And I agree with many of the pastors that I've heard. When somebody will come to them and say, well, I need your help, pastor. And they go, well, are you, where do you go to church? Well, I, I fellowship online with such and such place or on television. Well, go to that pastor. I don't know where they are. I don't know them. You know, well, then you don't have a home church. If you have to have a church where people know you and you're accountable to them and you're ministering, then can be ministered to by them. We're going to do verse 9. But, beloved, we have persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation through, uh, through we, though we speak, the, uh, for, though we thus speak. <laughs> so he says, we are pers persuaded. We are confident of this. He goes, we have better thoughts of you. You know, uh, you're not going to be falling away is what he's saying. We're, we think you're, you're there. Uh, better things of you and things that accompany salvation. And this is kind of an interesting word. We read accompany, but it really is the things that possess and have a hold over you. All right? And this is the beauty of this. Our salvation, when we get self saved... God takes possession of us. He holds on to us. We're not holding on to salvation. He says, I have your hand. I have you. Jesus said it this way. You're in my hand and the Father has my hand in his hand. So somehow, if you manage to find a way to jump out of Jesus' hand, and you're not going to, you'd be jumping right into the Father's hands. So, you know, it, it really makes a great point. Now, number one, we can't get out of Jesus' hand. And the picture of this is like a parent with their child, small child getting ready to cross a busy street. The very first thing we say, hold my hand. Now, the child thinks he's holding your hand. When I walked my kids across the, the street, I had hold of their hand. And it was like, you are not, and if they pulled away, I had their hand and wasn't going to let go. This is the picture that this is making out. God says, you are saved, I hold you. You are not going to jump out, you're not going to fall away. Again, it's another verse talking about the eternity of our salvation, that we cannot get out of it. And I've had people, well, I chose to go get saved, I can choose to not be saved. 
No, once you're saved, you are saved. God now holds you. Well, I can jump out of, out of God's hand. Well, you're going to jump right into the Father's hands. And his hands are really big. He's not, you're not jumping out of that hand. Not that you could jump out of Jesus' hand, but the point is, Jesus said, I'm holding you and the Father has my hand. You, you, got people, you got people that are crazy. In those cases, I don't, think that they were, I don't think they were really saved in the first place. If they think that they can jump out of that hand, and, you know, they, don't know, they don't know salvation in the first place if they think they can jump out. But, you know, and I'll just review the, 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 the doctrine of salvation with them. You know, did you accept Jesus Christ? Are, do you recognize you're a sinner? The problem is most people do not recognize they're a sinner. They want to believe that Jesus can save them, but they don't, know, they don't believe that they need to be saved. And this is the scary thing. There are a lot of people out there that we like to call, they, they, they purchase their fire insurance. Jesus, I want to believe that you, you know, I want to keep, you know, I want you to, I want to believe in you so I don't go to hell. No repentance, no recognition that they're a sinner. And all they do is say, well, I've, I've bought my fire insurance. I can do whatever I want now. They're not saved, probably. And I'm not their judge. I mean, it's just, if that's the only thing you're looking at is, I don't want to go to hell, so I ask Jesus into my heart, and there's no repentance and no recognition of your sinning and needing a Savior, then I don't believe they're saved. That's between them and God, but, you know, the, no repentance is the first thing, because that was one of the first things that Paul said. There must be repentance from dead works. All right? I am a sinner. I deserve hell. I'm going to repent. If there's no repentance in a person, then there is no salvation. Because the very first step is to recognize that I deserve punishment. And I have met many people over the years that really don't think that they're that bad a person. Yeah, I've made a few mistakes. You know, well, I don't know. God calls them sin. Well, no, I just made mistakes. I haven't sinned. All right? They say all the good things they do. And then they'll tell you all the good things they do. And this is very important for us to understand that God's looking at our salvation. And salvation starts the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Our eternal life starts. And that is beautiful. My eternal life doesn't start the day my body dies and I get to go to heaven. That is just when I get my new body. That is when I transition from this world to the spirit world. But my eternal life starts the moment I get saved and Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit and the Father live in me. And he gives me a new, makes me a new creation and I start experiencing life. I have a spirit that's been resurrected because we are born with a dead spirit because of our fallen nature. And people have to understand that we're born dead. <laughs> kind of been spiritually dead. Same thing happened to Adam and Eve when they died. They died instantly when they ate that fruit. They died spiritually. Now they lived several hundred years. Of, you know, I don't know when they, how far they were, but you know, let's say they sinned really early, and I think they did. They lived for another 900 plus years, but not spiritually. At some point, they, I think they did because they recognized the gift of God with the sacrifice of the, of the lamb and turned back to him. But all of that, they died instantly. And they had to be new. They had to become a new creation in Christ because of the sacrifice that was going to come later on. When we accept that sacrifice, we instantly have eternal life. It, and this is why people can think that they can lose their salvation because they don't understand that eternal life starts the moment that Christ comes into your life. They're going, well, eternal life starts when I die. No, it started when you believed in Jesus' sacrifice and you became a new creation in Christ. You got a, a spirit that was alive. You're, you're now a trichotomy instead of a dichotomy with a dead spirit in before and now you're taken out of the fallen state into the complete state where we have a living spirit that's going to spend eternity with God. And this is so important to understand. Do I understand that I am truly saved? And this is, all of this is going to be about eternal salvation. 
you cannot lose what you did not deserve in the first place when it was given to you. Because that would mean that God changed his mind and he doesn't change his mind. He does not change. And even when he judged Israel, he did not wipe Israel out. He sent them into captivity and brought them back into their, into their land. Twice <laughs> he, he allowed this to happen. And it brings them back. He does not renege his promise to Abraham to say, I'm going to make you a great nation. And you're going to still be around at the end, end days. As a matter of fact, you're going to be the one that populates the majority of the millennial kingdom. It's mostly Jews going into the millennial kingdom. There'll be a handful of Gentiles that don't take the mark of the beast. But most of them are going to be Jewish believers that go into the millennial kingdom. And this is going to be the critical point. God says, I haven't given up on my people because I made a promise. And they're the great one for us to look at. Now, will God judge? Oh, yes, he'll judge us when we sin. He'll allow things to come into our life to correct us. But he never rejects us when we're his people. And that is what we must understand. We're never rejected when we accept the gift of grace because it is a gift of grace. Lord, we thank you for this day. We thank you for all that you've done for us. Help us to understand your grace and to understand that we are saved when you come into our life and you make us a new creature. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friends, do you know God? Not just know about him. Today is the day to decide to become his child. God loves you and Jesus came to die for your sins. In Romans 3.23, we are told, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We all have sinned. God says the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We sin and deserve death and hell. However, Romans 5.8 says, But God commended his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God loves you so much, he died for us so that we can be forgiven and have eternal life. How do we do this? Romans 10, 9 through 8 says that if you shall confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. For with the heart man believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Today is that day for you to come to God and truly know him. Do you know him? Do you want to know him? Pray in your own words like this, God, I know that I am a sinner and deserve punishment. I believe that Jesus died to pay my sins. Forgive me and help me to turn from my sins and to live for you. If you have asked this of God and truly believe you are God's child and part of, of his family, we encourage you to do these things. First, tell somebody that you are saved. Second, start reading the Bible each day. We recommend starting with Ephesians and then the Gospel of John. Find a good Bible teaching church. If this is your, your day of salvation, you can contact us and we will send you a booklet to get started on your new life and are available to help you with any questions you have about the Bible. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by mail at Chloride Baptist Church, P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431.